Well, good morning again. It's good to see all of you here in the house of the Lord. Yeah, that was a little chaotic, but can you imagine a, a temple full of animals and sacrifices and what's going on with that? So next time I'll make sure you understand that you stay in your section, go out right and come in left. So, but still beautiful to see you all intermingling and uh, what a great time. And so we pray that as this is all delivered to the rescue mission and to the Hope Center, uh, that it will be used to demonstrate in a very real way, the love of Christ. And it'll be a blessing to many in our community during this holiday season. If you've not already taken the chance, I encourage you to turn your cell, your cell phones to silent so we don't have any interruptions during the message. And a special greeting to you joining us online this morning. It's so good for you to be with us. And thank you for taking this time for us to, to gather around the Word of God to study God's Word together. I hope you look forward to coming next week. I'm really looking forward to the concert we're going to have. There'll be a bell choir. There'll be a children's choir. There'll be our full choir. There'll be uh, just different music offerings and, of course, a celebration of the Lord leaving the glories of heaven to come and walk on the dust of the earth on our behalf, that he would be our sin offering, that he would be our Savior. And let's celebrate for all the good things that we have heard. Well, last week we looked at the story of the rich young man who ran up to Jesus, fell down on his knees, and asked him what one thing he must do to gain eternal life. And in the conversation that ensued, Jesus led the man to see that the problem was not in his wallet, it was in his heart. He loved his wealth, status, reputation, influence, more than he loved the Lord. And as a result, he walked away from eternal life, sad, but nonetheless lost. Well, as we get to the second half of the story this week, we might ask the question, what does that rich young ruler's rejection of the gospel have to do with me? And I think a question posed by Dr. Paul Brand in his book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, a book that he co-wrote with Philip Yancey, I think it helps us to understand. Dr. Brand in this book gives a powerful presentation of the wonder of human life, of the beauty of the human body, that and truly we are wonderfully made, showing the master hand, the master maker. But this pushes him to see, well, if I'm created in the image of God, so are those that are around me created in the image of God, and how should I reflect on the rich young ruler and those that are around me? And so he wrote a prayer to the Lord. He said, Dear Lord, I have been rereading the record of the rich young ruler and his obviously wrong choice but it has set me thinking. No matter how much wealth he had, he could not ride a car, could not have surgery, turn on a light, buy penicillin, hear a pipe organ, watch TV, wash dishes in running water, type a letter, mow a lawn, fly in an airplane, sleep on an inner spring mattress, or talk on a phone. If he was rich, then what am I? May the Lord open our eyes this morning to see not only how blessed we are, but the fact that if we have been blessed, we need to guard our, hope, our heart against putting the hope in what we have, in what we have earned, in what we have become, and put all of our trust in the one who is worthy of that trust, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the greatest blessing of all. 
Well, with that, let's read God's Word this morning together as we prepare to study it. And so if you can, I invite you one more time to stand in honor of God as we read His Word. Our passage this morning is Matthew 19, verses 23 to 30. And the living and hopeful Word of God says, And Jesus said to His disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate the goodness and the greatness of who you are, we thank you that we have this opportunity now to sit at your feet and have you instruct us through your holy word. And so, Lord, would you teach us as your Holy Spirit is at work among us? Would you be the one that gives us eyes to see and hearts that are open to hear and believe? Would you banish distracting thoughts? Would you reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to us in a deeper way as we study this word together, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, to recap what we saw last week and to get us ready for what we'll see this week, and as we finish Matthew 19, we see this young man running up to Jesus. What one thing must I do to enter eternal life? A conversation goes back and forth, and Jesus says, well, you have to be perfect. And so he says to the young man, sell everything that you have, give it all to the poor, and then come and follow me. Once he had disposed himself of all of his earthly possessions, he would be in a position then where he would have to trust the Father for everything, for daily bread, which is exactly the attitude that will save one, that childlike faith in a heavenly Father who is able to meet the needs of his children. And the young man would not do that. He was young and well-educated, well-connected. He had influence and power. He was a living example of some of the potential stumbling blocks and impediments that wealth can bring. Wealth can cause us to become complacent and desensitized to the things of God. When we're comfortable, we think less of God. When we seek self-sufficiency or seeking to be a self-made man, we find there is no room for God in our lives. Secondly, wealth can be addicting be controlling. Satisfaction can be found only in getting a little more, which ends up never being enough. The thrill of the pursuit often overtakes other desires and responsibilities. The more one has, the more one wants. Because we're created in the image of God, we were created to work. We were created to be creative. We were created to be industrious. We were created to be active. And we're to use our minds and our strength and our activities to make things, to develop things, to have dominion over creation, discover new things. 
And in the providence of God, if things are done according to God's ways and God's world, he often blesses the work of our hands. But when he does, it's at that time that we need to remember that even the wealth that we have obtained was given by his strength and is ultimately used for his good purposes and not just for our banal and selfish pleasures. God gives, for example, me the strength to work so that I can provide for my family and pay the bills and and keep the house going. And he does the same for each one of us as we look to him and trust in him so that we really see that all that we have comes from his hand. We're also called to live in that humble dependency upon God and in a joyful interdependency among the people of God. And so it's often then that we need to check our attitudes when it comes to our possessions and wealth. Is my thinking in conformity with the word of God? Is my living and my attitudes in conformity with the word of God? Are we focused on the Lord? And so we can compare two ways of thinking that are seen in Proverbs 18, verses 10 and 11. Let's read the word carefully. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall, in his imagination. So both of them are thinking of wealth. Both of them are thinking of walls. One runs into the tower of the Lord and is kept secure. One follows the imaginary wall of wealth and finds it as a trap far too often. Pursuing wealth is wearisome and trying to impress others is a burden. And in our world today, I think it can be said that far too many people are spending money they have not yet earned for things they really don't need to impress people they really don't like. I don't know if that was the case of the rich young ruler. We just know that he went away sad, but lost. There's nothing that he could do to save himself because it is Jesus alone who saves. He saves only those who repent and believe and trust entirely in Jesus for salvation. We saw in the parable of the soils that there are those that can be ensnared by the riches of this world. They're unable to produce the fruit of of Christ. In fact, they don't even belong to him because they're still serving their wealth. Jesus said we cannot serve God and money. This young ruler knew it, but he wouldn't change it. So may we learn from his example as we continue in our passage this morning. And that brings us to our first major point this morning. As you're following along in your sermon outline or on the app that you have on your phone, riches and the kingdom of heaven. Riches and the kingdom of heaven. And I'm actually going to begin by reading the last verse that we read last week, verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And notice that Jesus doesn't run after him. Sometimes in Scripture we are called to go after people. Other times we're not. It requires wisdom to know when to do what, when, and how, and in what manner. But this man had made a deliberate choice to walk away from Jesus. And so Jesus let him go. He didn't run after him and say, well, here, let me give you a better offer. Let me give you a sweeter offer. Let me make it easier for you to make some type of decision. Now, Jesus sets the conditions for our salvation. He said, you must love me more than you love anything else. You must sell all you have, give it away to the poor, and come and follow me. Pick up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow me. Well, this dramatic encounter with this rich young ruler would have left the disciples full of questions. And Jesus is going to have to address them. So 
he'll deal with all the issues of, of wealth, but he says initially that riches can be a blessing, riches can be a curse. This man loved his riches more than he was willing to love God. And so Jesus says, the rich cannot thread the needle. The rich cannot thread the needle. Verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now in the original where it says truly, we have the words in, in, in Aramaic, amen, amen. It's an authority of prophetic, it's an expression of prophetic authority on the part of Jesus. He goes on and says, amen, amen, I tell you again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He says that wealth becomes a challenge, an impediment, an obstacle, a blockage for many people to enter the kingdom of heaven. So money does not solve everything. Money does not answer everything. Money is not the end-all, be-all of life. And notice that in this same series of verses, he uses the term kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. They just mean the same thing. They're used interchangeably throughout the Gospels. To enter the kingdom of heaven is to enter the kingdom of God. To enter life is to be saved. To be saved is to have eternal life. They all mean approximately the same thing. Now, Jesus uses an expression here that I think we must understand is hyperbolic. And I think he's using a great sense of humor. The camel was the largest known animal to the people in the Middle East. This would have been the great animal that, that bore, the beast of the, bore the burdens of carrying things from one place to the other. They were called the ships of the desert. So they were the largest known animal to desert dwellers, to those in the Middle East of that day. But by contrast, the needle would have been among the smallest items found in a typical Jewish household. And so I think we need to see this as a burst of humor and irony from the mouth of Jesus. He takes the largest known animal and the smallest known object and says it's easier for the camel to pass through that than for a rich man to get to the kingdom of heaven. But you know, sometimes we're curious as, as men, we want to figure out if there's just a little way we can soften the word of God. And so in the history of the world, there have been those who have tried to Get around this by saying, well, you know, at one time in the history of Jerusalem, in one of the gates, there was a little small window called the eye of the needle. And in that eye of the needle, it was down below on the ground, so an animal would have to get down low on the ground, and it was so small that an animal would have to be stripped of all that was on it so it could skirt and crawl and manage to make its way through. So while it was difficult for a camel to get through the eye of the needle, it could do it. In the same way, it might be difficult for a rich man to get to heaven but he could do it. That's a great story. But there's no historical evidence that such a gate ever existed. So just throw it away. If you come across in a commentary, a book, a movie, a video that talks about it, you know you've done, have someone that has not actually done the historical research. No such gate ever existed. We don't need to help scripture. We don't need to try to make it easier. We just let God speak. And we have to respond accordingly. Second, the point of what Jesus is saying here is that no human effort can earn one's way to heaven. No effort, no matter how strenuous, how continuous, how sacrificial, how sincere, can earn one's way into heaven. Don't miss the main point of what Jesus is saying here. No one can earn or buy or achieve or obtain his own way to heaven. When we look at Psalm 49... Psalmist tells that truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever 
and never see the pit. Redemption of a soul is something that is divine and can only be accomplished ultimately by the God-man, the perfect man who stood in our place before a holy God and was our mediator. Well, the disciples hear this and they ask, well, what hope is there? What hope is there? Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? They're amazed. And we might understand a bit of their amazement because there was a common teaching of that day that wealth was seen as a sure sign of God's favor. And indeed, there are verses in the Old Testament that say that faithfulness to God or obedience to God or respect of His covenant often results in blessings. But they're not automatic, one meaning the other. People can obtain wealth through all kind of untoward means. Wealth, in their minds, they thought must be an advantage. So if this man is wealthy, surely he has an advantage and must be closer to God. But there needs to be an understanding of wealth in itself. And the Jews of those days and the disciples in this text had a misunderstanding. God often does bless those that obey his laws. Oftentimes, that does include material possessions. Oftentimes, he does bless the work of our hands. But one does not guarantee the other. There are many who have gained wealth through very evil means. And so while wealth can be a sign of blessing, it can also be a sign of hoarding and greed and idolatry. And so wealth often is an impediment to salvation, not proof of it. Once we obtain wealth, we have to work a little harder to keep our hearts focused on the fact that all that we have comes from God. And so we, we do well to heed the reminder that the Apostle Paul, who once would have thought, like these disciples, that wealth was actually a sure sign of God's favor, as Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, and preparing him to be a pastor in a local church, in 1 Timothy 6, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to have a verse to live for in 2024? Make it 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. And so Jesus has to correct the understanding and teaching of the disciples on this issue. He brought up the issue of marriage and divorce. And they said, well, if that's the case, who should get married? And so he has to explain what the doctrine of marriage is according to God. And now they hear the same thing about money and they say, if that's the case, who then could be saved? Because we thought the godly were the ones that were materially blessed. He needs to correct their worldview so that whatever they have in their lives in all aspects, they will see it through the lens of God himself as he's revealed himself in the Holy Word. So they need a balanced view of wealth. And we need a balanced view of wealth. Because wealth in and of itself often is a blessing from God. It is not an automatic blockage to salvation. We see men in the Old Testament like Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and David and others who were great men of faith and also men of great means. In the New Testament, we have men like Arimathea, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Zacchaeus who were men of means. But they met the Lord Jesus Christ and they exchanged 
the treasures of this earth for the true treasures of the kingdom to come. And so if we have wealth, if we have received blessings, we are to use them for God's kingly purposes and not for our own means. And so Dr. Daniel Doriani reminds us that we need to see wealth as a good servant, but as a terrible master. Not even the rich will be able to earn or achieve or accomplish or merit salvation on their own. So as they're going through this attitude recheck, a change in their thinking that will come back to be more thinking like the kingdom of heaven, well, then who can be saved? Jesus brings it back and says, ultimately, we keep our focus on God. And so he says, don't underestimate God. Verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, there's something interesting going on in the text here. In the expression, Jesus looked at them. It means he fixed his gaze at them. He stared at them. He's getting their attention to make sure that they're listening. And they says, well, who then can be saved? And he looked at them. And here's their question. He's going to answer it. He's saying, no human activity can bring it about. But then we hear some of the sweetest words in the English language. But with God, all things are possible. But with God. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is human is human. That the flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. People cannot earn their way to salvation. They cannot do enough things to gain God's favor. But with God, all things are possible. It's only the power of the grace of God that can overcome the idolatry and the hardness of the human heart. It can only happen in Jesus who said that he has come to save his people from their sins. Salvation is dependent on the action of God, not on the achievements of man, and God is in no way limited. But let's not turn the verse around. It says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We must not try to turn it on its head and say, well, it's possible for God, but it's only made possible by something that human beings do. That would mean, then, that with men, it is possible. And the text clearly says, with man, it is not possible. But with God, all things are possible. Even as we hear the gospel call, and we must repent. We must believe. We must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Even the ability to do that is given to us by the divine enabling of God. So that there's no boasting in anything that we do. But we fall on our knees before a wondrous God and boast in what he has done. And what he alone is able to do with that childlike faith, that childlike trust in a father who is ultimately good. So whether you have much or whether you have little, your greatest need is to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in him alone this morning for your salvation? Nothing in my hands I bring, but only to thy cross I cling. That is the work of salvation. But when you have your eyes open to hear, to hear the beauty of a Savior who saves, to hear the ugliness of sin that destroys us, and you hear that wonderful call, you run to the cross and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and rejoice in his presence forevermore.
It's that poverty of spirit that cries out to the Lord that allows us to experience the riches of Christ. And then we can understand the riches that come with being in the kingdom of heaven. Our second major point is rewards and the kingdom of heaven. Rewards and the kingdom of heaven. Well, this answer would have been a surprise to the disciples who thought that somehow wealth got them an inside track. And Jesus wants to push them to consider their, their situation before a holy God. And so Peter, of course, is the one who speaks out first, and he says, we've left it all. Verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter's looking to have some type of assurance that he's okay. What will be the reward? This rich man came to them, heard the gospel, and left. But Lord, we've, we've left it all to follow you. Is there any reward for us? And we must say that this is a good confession on the part of Peter. It's a good question. And Peter sometimes gets it right. And here he gets it mostly right. He got it right when, in John chapter 6, Jesus gives a powerful message on who he is, that he is the one who gives his life as the bread of the world, the bread of salvation, and that we must eat and drink his flesh symbolically, that we live off of him. And many people said, we can't do it. And that massive crowd walks away. Because, no, they're not going to be that dependent on Jesus for their salvation. And he says, are you going to leave as well? And Peter says, but Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter understands in a growing measure who this Jesus is. He's beginning to learn again and deeper in a deeper way that the call of the gospel is to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. That is the cost of the gospel. There is a cost. We give up everything we have so that we can get everything we need in Christ. But the other side of it is, there's a blessing. There's a reward. There's a privilege of being in Christ. Yes, our ultimate reward is knowing Christ. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is an eternal relationship with an eternal being, and there's great blessing in that. So Jesus wants to deal with the question, well, what about us? And he responds to all of the disciples, keep an eye on the time. Keep an eye on the time. Verse 28, and Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is promising rewards to those who follow him, but they will not be necessarily in this world. They will be in the world to come, in the new heavens and the new earth. And I find it interesting. We're going to do a little word study here this morning. Because as it's translated in the New English Standard Version as in the new world, we go back and look at the original word, and it's palingenesia. It literally means regeneration. It's the word we get for new birth. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. Titus 3, verse 5, when, Peter is writing, uh, when Tim, uh, Paul is writing to Titus about the new life that we have in Christ, we who were formerly dead in our sins and trespasses. And so as we read it, it says, He, God, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of, and there's that word that we have in Matthew 19, translated as regeneration in Titus 3, 5. Regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
in Titus 3, this regeneration is the new birth that the Holy Spirit does, which brings life to that which was dead. He raises us from death to life. We who were dead in sin and lost in our transgressions. That's personal salvation. But we're in Christ, and we believe that Christ is going to redeem all that was lost in Adam. And so in this rebirth and this regeneration that includes creation that will be redeemed and we will live in the new heavens and the new earth. It's our ultimate destination as believers. We will live in this renewed and restored earth wherein righteousness reigns and Christ is king over all. And we can read about this promise in places like Isaiah 65 and 2 Peter 3, Revelation 21 and 22. Jesus says, when I renew everything, when I make everything new, you will reign and you will rule with me as my children because you have believed in me. And when will that happen? When the Son of Man is sitting on his glorious throne. This is a statement that just throbs with excitement of prophetic fulfillment. It's a direct draw from Daniel 7 where one like the Son of Man, the Messiah, approaches the throne of the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father. And from God the Father receives this kingdom that is eternal and will have dominion over every language and tribe and people and language and family unit. And Jesus says, when that happens, and the regeneration of all things, and the renewal of all things, when I'm sitting on my throne in the new heavens and the new earth, you will rule and you will reign with me. But the essential part of the, problem, of the promise is that it's following Jesus. All that we have is in Christ. From beginning to end in our Christian life, from beginning to end in our salvation, from now into eternity, future, all that we have is in Christ. We live for him now and we're willing to suffer for him now and even die for him now and be persecuted for him now if that should be his will, knowing that we have a glorious resurrection and we'll reign with him one day. And we'll rule with him in the new, renewed creation. And so there are rewards. Many times in the New Testament, we are told that there are rewards for those who faithfully serve the Lord. And that we're called to work for those rewards which will last. To lay up our treasures in heaven. And if we do, then we will reign with him and rule with him. And there's promise and fulfillment language that is going on here to these 12 that are there. But we know it couldn't have been these direct 12 because one of them would betray him. And so there's a fulfillment language here of that the fullness of the people of God will reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's a promise that we have to look forward to. In Christ, all the promises of God find their yes and amen. In Christ, we find that there is the fulfillment of God's promise, and we will reign with Christ as we have lived with Christ, and we will rule with him over a renewed creation forever and ever and ever. That is our hope. You might think, boy, the future's looking pretty bleak. Believer, all oh, if you only knew, if you would just believe what is before you, you have the brightest of all futures. Well, Christ is going to return and set all things right and destroy every vestige of wickedness and completely renew all things. And then he will bring us into his glorious presence and said, let's have an eternal party. And we will worship him and praise him and live in his glorious presence forever and forever and forever.
But in the meantime, to lose is to gain. To lose is to gain. Verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. This rich young ruler was not willing to give up those things. And so he would be lost. The disciples said, we've given it up because in you we have found the true treasures of life. And we see in this passage that Jesus is forming this new family, the people of God that will be his brothers and sisters forever because they have placed him at the forefront and in the first place. And that takes precedent over even their human relationships. But if you look at this verse, we'll have a hundredfold in this life and we'll inherit eternal life. I think it's the difference between a bologna sandwich and a lavish buffet. And far too many people settle for the bologna sandwich of this life when they could lay up treasures for the eternal buffet at the master's table in the new world. Only losers win in the kingdom of heaven because they find out they haven't really lost at all, but they've gained. All who have left everything, Jesus said, to follow me, houses, family members, parents, children, Lands, possessions, for the sake of the gospel, will have a glorious blessing both now and then. They'll have a hundredfold blessing now and eternal life then and the glorious presence of the eternal one. So Jesus says, be willing to give up people and possessions and places to get the true prize of heaven. Because Jesus is our greatest treasure. Jesus is our greatest reward. He is our satisfaction and our sanctification. He is our hope. And he is our security. And this blessing will come when it's done for the sake of Jesus. Not because we think it's time to downsize, so let's get rid of things. Or not so we can become a killjoy or go off and join a monastery or try to earn our way to heaven or whatever things we may try to do. It's what's done for the kingdom of heaven, for the advancement of the gospel's sake around the world. And there's a joy in that type of service. How did you feel this morning when you came forward and you presented your offerings? Was there not a sense of joy in your heart? That there is a joy in giving, there is a joy in serving, there is a joy in helping. Well, if we are serving the Lord, there should be that joy in being an instrument of righteousness in his hands. And ultimately, you can't outgive God. And we understand maybe in a little deeper measure what Jesus said. The only words that are recorded outside of the Gospels in the New Testament in the book of Acts where Jesus is reported as saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Why? Because we're in fellowship with him. We say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Just on a personal level, the Lord keeps his word. I, I could say to a certain extent that this is, this is my story. I have experienced what the Lord talks about here. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't come to know Jesus Christ until I was 15 years old. At age 18, I went away to college, and I got involved with a campus group, and I realized, wow, there's a lost world out there. I need to be involved in bringing the gospel to the lost peoples of the world. And God called me into ministry. And at age 24, I left my family, I left my country, I left all that I knew to go to a little country in West Africa 
to work among Muslim students there at the University of Dakar. And from there I traveled on and spent much, much of time in, in the country of Jordan and the Arab Middle East. And from 1989 to 2016, most of my adult life was outside the country, involved in training men to teach other men about Christ and to bring the gospel to unreached parts. I, I missed out on family events, on birthdays and anniversaries and weddings. I was away from friends for many years. I missed some of the advantages of living in the Western world. But what did I really give up? In a sense, I gave up everything that I knew before, but I gained a greater intimacy about a God you just can't outgive. He's such a wondrous God, such a giving God, such a lavish God. And along the way, he, he gave me a family, he gave me a, a wife, he gave me a network of friends that span nations and, and states. And with a team that supported us and prayed for us over the time we were overseas, I gained a hundredfold in homes and parents and brothers and sisters and lands. We had people we could go anywhere, many different places where we would be received and we would be taken care of and people would lodge us. All we were learning is something that Jesus promised 2,000 years ago over which he's never failed. He said, trust me, follow me, be willing to give it all up for me and you'll find that I'm worth it. You know, really we just repeat the words of Hudson Taylor who perhaps sacrificed more than most missionaries in the history of the church. At the end of his life, he said, I never really gave up anything. Because that intimacy with Christ and fellowship and blessings that far surpass anything that this world can give. God is more than able to give back whatever we think we have to give up. Moreover, what we receive in the age to come will offset any losses we think that we have to have in this world. And so the question is this, and I'm going to quote Dr. David Platt. The question for us is whether we will live for short-term pleasures we cannot keep or for long-term treasure we cannot lose. Investing in the kingdom of heaven with all that we have will give us great blessings now and great blessings later. Perhaps we're more familiar with the missionary martyr Jim Elliott who said it this way, he was no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Whatever the Lord calls you to, he can't outgive you. I asked last week at the closing question, do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? Another way we might say it is, are you hanging on to your stuff so tightly that you're not freed up to serve the Lord and go wherever he might call you? And it might just be across the street to witness to that neighbor that you haven't talked to in years. But as the Spirit moves in our lives, He creates in us the desire to go where we need to go, to do what we need to do, to say what we need to see. And if Jesus is Lord, He can command anything of us that He wants. Because ultimately, He owns us. He's purchased us. He is our Lord and Savior. And so, when Jesus says, if you've left it all, it's to gain, it's not because He's just plumb some pie in the sky. He's saying, I will be with you. George Mueller was a great servant to orphans, also supported dozens of missionary enterprises around the world. And he says, Christians know that they are saved by grace, completely by grace in the matter of salvation from beginning to end. Yet 
so far as the rewards of grace are concerned, in the world to come, there is an intimate connection between the life of the Christian here and the enjoyment and the glory in the days of Christ appearing. Yes, when we see Jesus face to face and we behold him in all of his glory, all that we have done, all the rewards we might have seen, all the crowns with the jewels in them, we will just take them and cast them at his feet. But you know what, friends? I want to live my life in such a way that I just so enjoy the Lord now and that I have a whole bunch of stuff that I can jet at his feet one day. I want a life that matters both for now and for eternity. Do you long for that? Strive for that? Pray for that? Seek for that? Sacrifice for that? In order for that to happen, we need to put the right things first. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The rich young ruler wanted to use his wealth to try to leverage his way into heaven. Jesus says that you have to lose it all in order to gain what truly matters. When he says the first will be last, and the last will be first, he's not referring to seat choices in the church on Sunday morning. He's not referring to a merit theology where, you know, I did such and such and so and so. It's a statement of discipleship and stewardship. The little sacrifices we make now for Christ's sake, whatever he calls us to do, will be rewarded later. Those who want to serve others now and seek the well-being of others now and the glory of God will be rewarded later. You know, the math of heaven is different than the math of earth. Now, we're going to see that more clearly when we get to the next section in the gospel according to Matthew when we get to chapter 20. We're not going to get to it for a while, however, because starting next week, we're going to have a few weeks where we celebrate Advent and celebrate the end of the year and the new year. But sometime in January, we'll get back to our study in Matthew, and we'll look at the math of heaven versus the math of earth. But for a foretaste, we recognize that we are to seek rewards. But the only way we get them is through loyal obedience and faithful service to our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is never drudgery to serve the Lord. If the joy of the Lord is our strength, if we're walking in fellowship with him, he gives us the strength not only to enjoy what we're doing, but because we enjoy him. But then he brings the reward and the increase. But we don't seek rewards for reward's sake. We seek rewards because Jesus is our ultimate reward. And as we seek him, and as we pursue him, and we have intimacy with him, he's the one that brings the blessing and the increase. Paul, at the end of his life, said, I just want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that by some way I might obtain the resurrection from the dead. He wanted to have a life that, was mad, that mattered to Christ and would have something to give to Christ when he met him face to face. So we can seek the rewards now because we seek Jesus now and lay it all up at his feet. And so let's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We have but a short time to live. And most of us recognize as you move along in life, it seems to speed up. Do you long for the age to come? Or are you attached to this world and those things you just don't want to let go of? If you had to answer the question this morning, is Christ your highest value, what would your answer be?
And on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being total dedication, where are you right now in using the resources of your life for Christ? The time, the talents, and the treasures that you have. What are you longing for? Be first and be last. And where do you want to be first or last? In this world or in the world to come? As I said, over the next few weeks, we're going to celebrate Advent. But think about what Jesus did. Left the glory of heaven, was in perfect harmony with God the Father and God the Son from eternity past. But wanted to honor the Father and wanted to redeem a people for the Father. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit worked it out together that there would be a people that would be redeemed. And he said, here my Father, send me. And he came and lived among us for 30 some odd years with us. And didn't sin once so that he could be the perfect sin offering perfect guilt offering, the perfect peace offering, the perfect everything to the Lord. When he hung on a cross, hanging between earth and heaven, stretched out his hands and says, it is finished. And he's the one that bids us come. Come. Come and follow me. Pick up your own cross, deny yourself, and follow me. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, what are some lessons we can take away? Because trusting in what we can do will not save us. We joyfully confess our faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Because we cannot outgive God, we cannot outgive God. We gladly make all that we have available to Him and to His service. So we can say to the Lord, blessed be your name that you give and you take away, but also that you are a God that provides for your children at every turn. Because Jesus is our ultimate reward, we strive to serve him fully, willingly, and joyfully. If the joy of the Lord is our strength and the fruit of the Spirit is joy, we should be the most joyful of people for we walk in the power of God's Holy Spirit in obedience to him and his holy word. Because being great in God's kingdom is our priority, we are ready to serve others and serve God's purposes here on earth. One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate the greatness of salvation, as we contemplate the greatness of Christ, Father, forgive us for the so shallow view we often have of him. Forgive us for the lack of understanding that we have of who he is and what he's come to do. But thank you for your forgiveness that sets us free, makes us clean. And thank you for your Holy Spirit that works within us that we can grow in our understanding of who this Jesus is. And as we are in the Advent season, Father, Put a spirit of joy in our hearts that we will celebrate that light has come into the darkness, that hope has come into despair, that truth has come against error, that Jesus has come to conquer the devil and his works. And we thank you, Father, that in Christ we have a great hope. Would you stir our hearts with that great hope? Would you remind us of what it means to seek you first? And then joyfully lead us that we might do it. As we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.